Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for March 2011. I'm Jay Suarez, Managing Editor for the Journal. This month, we highlight 10 research papers. This includes a review by David Spring, who provides a guide to high-throughput screenings in chemical biology. Research from the labs of Thomas Burris and Patrick Griffin describe a compound with implications to treating type 2 diabetes. A study spearheaded by Kenneth Connors reports the identification of novel druggable sites on protein kinases of high therapeutic importance. Hiroyuki Osada and colleagues provide a compound with potential use in therapies against HIV. Shin Shen Yi reports novel carbohydrate antigens of interest in cancer vaccine development. Research by Tamio Mizukami and colleagues identify a novel target for anti-cancer drug development. Work from Miriam Gauchin's lab illustrates a fascinating new method to measure ligand binding to a protein, and a study by Christoph Biot, Timothy Egan, and co-workers describe the potency of an anti-malarial drug. We'll also be talking to two of our authors, Douglas Weibel and Qisheng Zhang, later in the podcast. But now we'd like to highlight some interesting content you will find only on our website. To learn more about our authors of the manuscripts in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors section on the web. This month we feature nine young scientists, Christoph Biot, Yi Zheng Yun, Weigang Huang, Chang Xin Huo, Maula Khan, Yu Wang, Emin Yelsin, Fan Yang, and Xiu Jing Zheng. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We are now joined by Douglas Weibel at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, author of the recent paper, Encapsulating Bacteria in Agarose Microparticles Using Microfluidics for High-Throughput Cell Analysis and Isolation. Hi, Doug. Hi, Jitesh. So your current article in ACS Chemical Biology describes a microfluidic technique to encapsulate single bacterial cells. Could you tell us a little bit about this technique? Sure. The idea was inspired by the limitations currently of growing bacteria on auger plates, which often takes several days to get visible colonies that you can isolate and pick, and also tends to require large amounts of reagents. And so we envisioned that the developments in microfluidics would enable us to essentially shrink down a Petri dish to an object that was maybe 30 microns in diameter instead of a typical dish, which is several centimeters, and that we would encapsulate bacteria inside of these dishes that are actually small agrospheres, and that we would amplify the bacteria inside of these particles and isolate them using high-throughput techniques. So it would essentially shrink down a Petri dish by several thousand-fold and would speed up analyses. That sounds really cool. So you mentioned the diameter of these microparticles being approximately 30 microns. Why specifically 30 microns? So microfluidics makes it possible to create droplets and microparticles with a range of sizes and dimensions and volumes, but we were particularly interested in targeting 30 microns because the way that we envisioned analyzing and isolating bacteria was using fluorescence-activated cell sorting. 
And typically, fax instruments or flow cytometers have a cutoff of around 40 microns for their core. That is, these instruments essentially pass particles through a very thin liquid core and require that these particles stay in that core in order to be analyzed. And particles that are larger tend to clog the capillaries of these instruments. And so we knew that if we were making objects that were approximately 30 microns, we would be in this range of sizes or dimensions that would be compatible with these instruments. Okay, that makes sense. So you ran a pilot study by encapsulating these individual E. coli cells and testing them against rifampicin. What did you observe in this study? Well, our interest in this technique is to use it to identify, ultimately, the targets of small molecules in bacteria. And since many of the kinds of small molecules that we're interested in studying are not commercially available and are only available in very small quantities from isolation from natural sources. We really wanted to focus on a technique that would work well and would be compatible with very small amounts of compounds and reagents. And so kind of as a test bed for this idea that you could use a very small amount of a compound, maybe a microgram, and with that amount of compound you could generate and isolate resistant mutants in a strain, we turn to rifampicin, which is a well-known antibiotic, which targets the beta subunit of RNA polymerase. And what we found is that this technique made it possible for us to not only rapidly determine the minimum inhibitory concentration of rifampicin against the E. coli strains that we studied, but that we could also use very small amounts of rifampicin and very short amounts of time to isolate and characterize mutants that had spontaneously developed resistance to rifampicin. And by isolating those and characterizing them, we identified the target and actually identified the allele that conferred resistance to these strains of bacteria. So you described earlier some of the advantages of using microfluidic devices. Could you describe the advantages of using this technique over standard microbiological techniques? Sure. I think in many cases, auger plates work very well for lots of things. And traditionally, the way that bacteriologists figure out the target of a small molecule is that they plate bacteria on many parallel auger dishes that typically have a volume of each dish is about 20 milliliters. And they infuse in those plates a small molecule, whatever they're studying, at a concentration about tenfold higher than the minimum inhibitory concentration. And then they incubate those and, after several days, isolate resistant mutants and then go ahead and characterize the target in those mutants. And, of course, whole genome sequencing has made that process tremendously powerful. But those techniques require that you have tens of milligrams of compounds, and you can wait a week or so to isolate and identify the target. But if you want to do it faster and you want to do it with a lot less material, this microfluidic technique makes that possible. So that's one way that this technique has an advantage in some circumstances 
over traditional outer petri dishes. I think with microfluidics, a lot of times people say, you know, microfluidics is so powerful because it uses less in terms of the quantity of reagents and therefore cuts down on cost. And sometimes that's true, and sometimes it really doesn't matter because those assays use reagents that are pretty inexpensive to begin with. I think this is a case where, you know, in the long run, it actually may be very beneficial because if you're working with a natural product where it takes you a year to isolate 100 micrograms, and that's all you have to work with, and you want to find the target, there really aren't many ways you can go about doing that. All right. That sounds great. Thanks for joining us today. Sure. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We move on to our next author, Qisheng Zhang at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, author of the recent paper, A Fluorogenic Small Molecule Reporter for Mammalian Phospholipase C Isozymes. Hi, Qisheng. Hi. So your manuscript in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology is focused on assaying phospholipase C isozymes. What enzymatic reaction does this enzyme catalyze, and what are the consequences of aberrant regulation of this enzyme in a cell? Okay. Phospholipase C catalyzes the hydrolysis of membrane lipids, phosphodienositides, 4,5-bisphosphate, generally called the PIP2, cleave that PIP2 into two second messengers. One is uh, diacylglycerol and the other one is IP3. What happens is this IP3 is going to go to the cytoplasmid, activate the calcium channel ER, and that leads to the calcium release into the cytoplasmid. And at the same time, this uh, diacylglycerol is going to activate PKC, and that's also induce a number of signaling events. So you can see that this enzymatic reaction involves three really important second messengers, PIP2, SP3, and diacylglycerol. So uh, they're actually responsible for a number of uh, cellular events induced by growth hormones, neurotransmitters, or cytokines. So essentially, this enzymatic reaction is very important in signaling events. Once these signaling events is misregulated or somehow it controlled not as well as the cellular environment requires, then it leads a number of cellular diseases, for example, these different types of cancers or neuropathic pains. Or recently, it's also showing PLC misregulation. It's related to Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So what are the current limitations to studying phospholipase C enzymes? There are two major limitations here. There's 13 different mammalian phosphodienositides from mammalian phospholipase Cs. And these 13 members of PLCs can be grouped into six different families. But it's not really clear why the cells lead so many different PLCs. And also it's known that different extracellular stimulation leads to the same PLC activation, but it will give different physiological response. The question is when, how, and where are different PLCs are activated under different stimulations. So the immediate question is, can you actually follow the PLC activation in the living cells? And currently, there is no way to do that. But if you can do that, that will be great because you can really understand which PLC is activated at which localization and which time and what's the consequences. The second limitation is currently there are low selective PLC inhibitors. 
I mean, small molecule inhibitors. And those small molecule inhibitors are really important to understand the enzymatic actions because it can really do the pharmacological regulation of the enzymatic activity in a temporal and spatial manner. And actually, currently, there's one small molecule, it's called U73122, that has been widely used in the field for PLC regulation. And people believe that this small molecule is a PLC inhibitor and has used that for more than 1,600 papers. But the reality is this U73122 is not a PLC inhibitor but the field just take it for granted and use it for many years in many different publications that could potentially generate some confusion. So I think those are two major limitations, how to really report the cellular PLC activity in real time and how to generate direct and selective PLC inhibitors. So to this end, you've developed a novel phospholipase C isozyme reporter. Could you briefly describe the design of this new activity probe and your observations in assaying this enzyme's activity? Yes. So our design is really based on fluorescence generation from a PLC substrate. What we did is we re-engineered the PLC substrate PIP2. So instead of using the diacyglycerol linker, to link the head group IP3, what we did is design the 4-hydroxy alcohol linker. Once we have this linker to link the fluorophore, which we use a 6-aminoquinoline with the head group IP3, that will create the reporter, which we call WH15. And this reporter itself, it's not fluorescent under the activation of the wavelengths of 535 nanometer. But once there is PLC activity in the cells, you will start to cleave the IP3 from this WH15. That will lead to a tandem cleavage of the reporter to generate a fluorescent 6-aminoquinone. So the net effect of this PLC reaction is basically to convert a non-fluorescent small molecule, that's the PLC substrate, into a fluorescent molecule 6-aminoquinone. So you can basically, by monitoring the fluorescence change, to really get the sense what's the PLC activity in the cell. So that's the basic design of this reporter. What we observed is this reporter can generate more than 30-fold fluorescence enhancement in the purified enzymatic reaction. And when we use the thiolysate that has been overexpressed different PLCS forms, we see typically 10 to 30-fold fluorescence enhancement in that case. So it really shows that the reporter gives a very large window of a signal change that could potentially be used to image cellular PLC activities. Okay, just to reiterate, what are the advantages of this reporter over previously designed probes for this class of enzyme? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are several different probes for PLCs that have been reported in the late 90s, early 2000s. But since its publication, those reporters or probes have never been used in any research. We're kind of curious what happened there. And then we noticed that the fold activation, either it's fluorescence or luminescence for those probes typically only gives you about two to four folds. So that's not really good enough 
for to differentiate from the cellular background. So that's one of uh, the potential problem. The second potential problem is the design typically puts fluorophore or, or potential reporter directly attached to the height group. So that makes the huge fluorescence or, or luminescence group very close to the enzymatic cleave site that's phosphor oxygen bound. That potentially have put two issues. One is you could really generate a huge interference with the enzyme so that the enzyme couldn't really efficiently do its job. That's probably why there is only a small window, two to four uh, signal enhancement. The other issue is once you have that huge group next to the active cleavage site, then it could potentially make the phosphor oxygen bond even more labile so that itself is a lot stable even can be cleaved without the presence of the enzyme. So that gives you another reason why the signal enhancement is small, because the background level of signal could be really high. So that's the limitations there. What we did is we put the 4-hydroxybenzyl linker in between. So that's a relatively small linker that gives the enzyme minimal interference for its action. That's why it's efficiently cleaved the reporter and generated more than 30-fold signal enhancement. That sounds great, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We continue to describe chem glossary terms on the air. This month's key phrase is fluorescence-activated cell sorting, which is a specialized type of flow cytometry that differentiates and sorts heterogeneous biological cells into separate containers according to their light scattering and fluorescent characteristics. For more information on the use of fluorescence-activated cell sorting, please refer to the article by Douglas Weibel's lab in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit us at www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening.